Hey, that was very kind of you. How you doing, Hume? You guys doing good? Hey, if you've got a Bible, open it up to Jonah chapter three. We are making our way through this story, not a story about a man being swallowed by a whale, but a story about the heart of God and the hope of man. We've seen Jonah run from God and rebel against God, and then we've seen God in all of his sovereign power and his authority meet Jonah at the bottom, meet him in the belly of the fish, and bring him to a place of total surrender where he cries out to God, receives the help of God, and now we're gonna see Jonah tonight in chapter three get back on track and go do the thing that God was calling him to do in the first place. What's your favorite Christmas movie? I heard Elf, I heard Die Hard, I respect that answer. Home Alone. A Nightmare Before Christmas, Christmas with the Cranks. Okay, all right, that's enough, that's enough. I did not hear, I did not hear the undisputed true answer to that question. If you did not say that the best Christmas movie ever is It's a Wonderful Life, then you're wrong. Shout out. It's a Wonderful Life is the undisputed reigning champ Christmas movie. There's no debate, it's the best Christmas movie ever made. And if you've ever seen it, you'll know that it's a story about a man named George Bailey, and he finds himself in kind of a crisis of his life. He finds himself at the bottom, in desperate trouble, about to lose his business, he, he lost a bunch of money, and he's angry, he's confused, he's frustrated, and we find him in this desperate place where he's lashing out at the people that he loves, and his life gets so low that he drives to the bridge and contemplating suicide, he wishes that he had never been born. And in that moment, an angel named Clarence comes from heaven and decides to show George a vision of what his life, what, what the town that he lives in would be like if he had never lived. What if his wish was granted and he never existed and he wasn't around? And so he takes this tour through the town and everything is worse. The greedy villain is running everything. His little brother who was a military hero actually drowned as a kid because he wasn't there to save him. And his beloved wife was a lonely old maid who never got married. Now, after seeing this vision, he comes back to his senses and there's this incredible scene at the end of the movie. I'm gonna spoil it for you. You had like 60 years to watch it, so chill out. He runs back to his house. It makes me cry every single time. Don't judge me, I cry in movies like this. He runs back to his house and it is as if he's reborn. He is he is squeezing his kids and calling out their name. He's kissing his wife. He forgives his friends that had wronged him. And it's like everything is totally renewed. George Bailey was absolutely transformed. He stopped what he was doing. He experienced a moment of great clarity. He took decisive action and everything was different. He got his life back. And we, we need a a spiritual transformation that would resemble that. We need to 
experience a moment of clarity. We need to come to our senses and take decisive action so that we can experience this kind of transformation in our spiritual lives. And here's the great news. God is more than willing to do it for us. It's not something we can produce on our own. If we're going for spiritual life and spiritual transformation, we can't make that happen, but God can make it happen. And in fact, he wants to make it happen. This is good news for us tonight. God would be happy to turn your life completely upside down in the best way possible, to forgive you and to heal you and to restore you and to give you joy and love and hope and peace, to take you off the course that you're on and set you on a new course that's with him, he would love to turn your life upside down. In a word, he would love to bring you revival. You heard that word, revival? It's a pretty churchy word. It just means life again, to revive, to give you life. God wants to give you life. This is what God loves to do. This is God's favorite kind of work. This is the business that God is in. God loves to make blind eyes see and to make deaf ears hear and to make hard hearts soft and to make dead people live. God is more than willing to give us revival. But the thing is, it will not be free. Oftentimes what we want is God to give us all of the blessing of spiritual life and transformation, but we don't wanna give anything up in exchange, and that's not how the kingdom of God works. God is more than willing to give revival, but he will require something from you, and what he will require is repentance. And what we're gonna see in the text tonight is that repentance will lead us to revival. If we're looking for transformation, it's going, to, it's going to come when we walk the road of repentance. I wanna to talk to you about that idea tonight. It's this, when I respond in repentance, God gives revival. When I respond in repentance, God gives revival. I wanna show you tonight when Jonah finally gets where he's going and he arrives at the city of Nineveh and he preaches this message, we're going to see miraculously, supernaturally, this city, this wicked people. We're gonna see them turn from their ways and turn to God in an act of massive repentance, and we will see God grant revival. And as we do, we're gonna learn from these people. We're gonna pattern our lives, in a sense, after them. And I'm hoping and praying that for some of you tonight, this will be the moment when you decide to stop going the way that you're going, to meet with God, to walk the road of repentance, and I'm praying this will be the night that you experience revival. In fact, at the end of the message, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to respond in just that way. But let's read together Jonah chapter three, and then we'll dive in. Jonah three says this, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Verse six, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh 
by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. When I respond in repentance, God gives revival. I want revival for so many of you tonight. I want revival for myself. I want spiritual life and transformation and what I wanna do is I wanna walk through this story and show us five ways that we can experience revival. I have no idea why all of these messages are landing in blocks of five, but they all are. I've got another five things for you tonight. Five ways to experience revival, and here's the first way. How to experience revival? Way number one, take a second chance. Take a second chance. The text begins like this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, so, it's just like the very beginning, Jonah chapter one and verse one, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, but it says, the words right after, came to Jonah the second time. I, I love this, God does not shame Jonah, God does not embarrass or expose Jonah, God simply repeats his original instructions. This is so kind of God, because God has every reason in the world, and I kind of expect him to, if I'm being honest at this moment, to be like, Jonah, you idiot, are you finally ready to get on board with what I've wanted you to do all along? Like, hey, hardhead, are you listening? Do, have you finally admitted that I'm smarter than you and that I'm in charge of you? Like, I kind of expect God to do that because that's sort of the way I interact with other people. I want him to just like drop the hammer on Jonah and make sure he feels how dumb he is before he gets another shot, but God doesn't do any of that. God simply repeats to him the instructions again. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. This is what God does. God gives second chances. If God didn't give second chances, he would be living all alone in his kingdom. Because you and I, we're the people who need second chances, and third chances, and fourth chances, and fifth chances. Because inevitably, because of our weakness and our sin, we will mess it up. We won't get it perfectly, we won't obey God all the way, we won't be all that we're called to be or all that we ought to be. God must give second chances and he does because he knows that we need them. And so he says to Jonah again, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. This is what God does, he gives second chances. This is all throughout his word. If you've, even, if you've spent time reading the Old Testament, you'll know that it is just full of chances. God's people are not devoted to him the way that they should be and they fall away and they worship idols and they get lost in sin and they run away and disobey and yet God constantly and patiently is welcoming them back into relationship with him and showing his mercy and showing his grace. It's all throughout the scriptures. If you know the story of Peter, remember when Jesus was being arrested and he was 
was being tried and Peter's standing around the fire and the little servant girl is like, hey, do you know Jesus? And Peter, coward that he is, denies three times even knowing Jesus. And he utterly fails. And he's so embarrassed and ashamed that he runs away and he goes back to fishing. Jesus catches him on the shore, and if you're ever wondering about a God who gives second chances, just take some time, maybe in your cabin all alone tonight, read John chapter 21. It's the story of what Jesus does when he meets Peter on the beach. And he doesn't shame him, he doesn't embarrass him, he offers him a second chance. He says, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. He gives him the instructions that he'd been giving him all along, and so God does with Jonah here. He gives him instructions, and he gives him another chance. Offers another chance to his disobedient spokesperson, and he's about to offer another chance to someone we probably think deserves it even less, Jonah certainly did, to the wicked Ninevites. Remember these people who committed unspeakable acts of violence, and they were horribly corrupt? Even they are about to get a second chance. Sometimes you and I think that we are not worthy of a second chance, that God couldn't give us another opportunity to be in relationship with him. I've heard all kinds of young people say it. Well, you have no idea what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know how long I've faked it or the things that I've done or the people that I've run with. I would just encourage you this way tonight. Do not disqualify yourself from a second chance that God is willing to give you. Don't take grace off the table when God is offering it. I think God knows who is worthy of a second chance. And if he says he'll give one to you, then he will do it. And I guarantee he's given second chances to people a lot worse than you. You know the story of Paul? He murdered Christians and then God transformed him into a powerful missionary to build the kingdom and advance the gospel. Why? Because God gives second chances. And if you want to experience revival, if you want to experience transformation and salvation and new life, then take the second chance that's on the table. Hear the instructions of God and no matter how many times you've ignored them before or no matter how many times you have vacillated between obedience and disobedience, take the chance again to obey God. You can experience revival by taking a second chance, and so Jonah does. Look at verse three. It says, so Jonah arose. It's the second time that phrase has been used in the book. It was used in chapter one. It says, so Jonah arose, and in chapter one, he arose to flee to Tarshish and disobey, but here in verse three, because he's taking his second chance, it says, Jonah arose And he doesn't flee to Tarshish, he goes to Nineveh where he's supposed to be. He went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Here's the second way to experience revival. First, take a second chance. Second, hear a hard message. Hear a hard message. I love Mexican food and in Phoenix we have great Mexican food. Now, I know uh, cilantro is very divided. Any cilantro fans in the house? It's like, cilantro is usually pretty 50-50. People are like, die hard, put cilantro on my tacos, load me up, and other people are like, it tastes like soap. Anybody in the soap category? Okay. So, I love cilantro, 
And on occasion, I've been crushing some street tacos in Phoenix, and then I, you know, I'll, like, I'll be out for lunch, I'll eat some tacos with cilantro on them, and I will go the rest of the afternoon, and then like, I'm coming home from work like later, later in the evening, and I arrive at home, and I walk into my bathroom, and I see in my teeth, I've got like a giant palm-sized branch piece of cilantro stuck right in between my teeth. Anybody ever been there? And here's the thing I wonder when that happens. I wonder, do I have any friends? How many people did I interact with and they didn't tell me what was going on? You know what I'm talking about? Like how long has my fly been down? How long has the cilantro been in my teeth? And no one told me what was going on. Listen, we know this even in mundane things. People who care about you, they tell it like it is. Do you know that that's true? If someone doesn't care about you, They'll, they'll blow smoke, they'll fluff it, they'll cover over the truth, they won't tell you the way it really is, but someone who truly cares about you, they tell you like it is. And that is true, not just with cilantro in your teeth, but with the most important realities about life and about death. And what we're gonna see here in verse four is we're gonna see Jonah preach the message that God gave to him, and it is a message of judgment. It's a message of judgment. Jonah begins to walk through this very great city, probably to each square and gathering place in this large metropolis, and he preaches an eight-word message. He called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He preaches a message of judgment. He says Nineveh will be overthrown, and that word overthrow, it actually, we don't catch this in the English language, but it has two potential meanings. On the one hand, it means total destruction. It will be pounded into the ground, it will be utterly laid to waste. That's the first meaning of overthrow. But the second potential meaning of overthrow is to turn around, or to turn upside down, to completely transform. So there's a bit of a Hebrew play on words here. He says, yet 40 days, and this is gonna go one of two ways. This city is gonna be utterly destroyed, or it is gonna be completely transformed. Those are the two options. This is a message of judgment and it is a warning. God is saying to the people of Nineveh through the prophet Jonah, if you don't radically change, destruction is coming. Now, I hear a lot, and maybe you do. If God is a God of love, then why would he express judgment and wrath? Have you heard this before? Have you heard people say this? If God is so loving, then why does he show wrath? Well, I think that question is actually based on a false premise that judgment and love are opposites, and that is not true. That is not true. God, in fact, I would argue with you, God judges because he loves. God does not judge in spite of the fact that he is loving. God judges because he is loving and I can prove it to you. Imagine, fast forward one day, you're married, you have kids, and you have this sweet little boy. It's not hard for me to imagine because I actually have a couple of them. Imagine you are driving up to their school and you're gonna pick them up. And as you roll up to the schoolyard, you look out in the distance and you see your sweet little boy with the school bully on top of him, punching him in the face and terrorizing him. Because you are a loving person, is your love going to motivate you to simply sit in the car, look the other way, and say, I'm not gonna do anything about that because I'm a loving person? Heck no. 
No way. It is, in fact, because you are a loving person that you're gonna hop out of that car and rectify the situation, right? You're gonna run over to that school bully and maybe be a little rough in the way you get him off your son (laughs) because you love. Not in spite of your love, because you love. Listen, God loves the people that he has created. And it is because he loves the people he created that he hates the sin that threatens to destroy them. God is a God of judgment. The same judgment that he expressed towards these people in Nineveh is the judgment that we need to realize belongs to us because of our sin. God hates sin and he has promised to fully and finally eradicate it through his wrath and his judgment. However, God tells that his judgment is coming. He gives a warning, why? Because he desires mercy. God wants to give mercy, but in order for us to receive mercy, we first have to hear the hard message that we need mercy. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11, God says this, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. When Jonah goes into this city, whether or not he was feeling it in his heart, he was an expression of the love of God in warning against coming judgment. The hard message of judgment that the Ninevites heard and that we need to hear, it is not the gleeful shout of a torturer, it is the loving warning of a father who says if you don't change, if you don't turn, this is what will happen because of what you're doing. There will be destruction if you don't turn from your sin. That is a hard message that you need to hear and God loves you enough to tell you. To experience revival, you have to take a second chance, hear a hard message, and here's the third way. You have to give a genuine response. Look at what happens in verse five. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This is, (laughs) this part of the story is shocking. It doesn't make any sense actually. Like if you, if you think about what's going on, there, there are thousands upon thousands of people in this wicked pagan city, this imperial empire that commits all these acts of violence, and a single solitary Jewish prophet goes walking into their midst, says eight words, and turns the whole country upside down. This, is, this doesn't make any sense, but for the undeniably supernatural display of the mercy and the grace of God. That's what this is, make no mistake. These people are responding to the incredible work of God in their hearts and in their lives and in their country. I mean, how could it be anything else? What else in the world besides the power of a sovereign God could do something like this with an eight-word message from a bitter prophet to turn the whole nation upside down in an act of revival? This is the work of God. Now look at how they respond. It says, 
three things about their response. They believe, they speak, and then they act. First, they trust. It says they believed God. They believed God. They trust that what Jonah said was true and that the source of the truth was almighty God himself. And then they vocalize that belief by calling for a fast and then they act on it. Everyone from rich to poor to young to old, everyone puts on sackcloth in a sign of their repentance. These people respond to what God was actually doing in their hearts. When we might expect them to just reject this message altogether, they receive it. Now, it's really easy in the church world, it's really easy when you're up at Hume Lake to fake it. Do you know that this is true? It's really easy to put on a face. Like you're hearing the messages and you're kind of understanding what's going on and and it's easy for us to act like we are closer to God than we are or to say the right thing in cabin time so my leader won't press me too hard and to kind of dodge and at the right times and in the right ways appear spiritual so everybody will just kind of leave me alone but inside I know I'm really just faking it. The, The problem is that God can't work with a fake version of you. He can only work on the real thing. There is a real version of you that's truly in there somewhere that's actually at some point in your relationship with God and God knows the real you and wants to work on the real you but as long as you're faking it, he has nothing to offer you. I wonder if tonight you would genuinely respond to God. This is, this is one of my favorite things to give people permission to do because I think sometimes we have this idea that we have to talk to God in a certain way or we have to use formulaic words with him or we have to approach him in a certain kind of manner. But God actually just wants to interact with the real you. Like you, you have permission to go to God and to tell him where you're really at. If you're angry or you're hurt or you're confused or you feel far from him, why don't you just tell him? Why don't you just say to him, hey God, I'm kind of mad at you right now. Hey God, I feel really confused. Hey God, I'm hurt by this thing that's going on in my life and I don't understand it. To experience revival, what we have to do is give a genuine response. These people, based on the supernatural work of God, their genuine response was to believe God and to trust God and to walk in repentance. So tonight I would just challenge you, say what you really mean, respond in a genuine way and God can meet you there and take you where you need to go. Here's the fourth way to experience revival. Make a dramatic change. Make a dramatic change. I wanna take a minute and dig into this idea with you of repentance because that's a, that can be a really churchy word, just like the word revival. Re- repentance is probably a word that you've heard before, but let's take a second and understand what it really means. If we really boiled it down, the word repentance means to turn around. To turn around. Have you, ever been, uh, have you ever been walking on a sidewalk, headed somewhere, and the thought dawns on you that you are headed exactly in the wrong direction? <laughs> you, know, you know that feeling? And then you don't wanna look like a total idiot, so you kind of like stop and like look at something, and you're like, oh wow, that's interesting. Oh yeah, I just casually have to go this way. Because you don't wanna look dumb. You don't wanna do this. You're like walking, and then you're like. Okay, and people are like, what is wrong with that person? Are they crazy? Repentance, this is what repentance is. Repentance is I am heading this way and I am walking this way, this is my direction, but what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna stop and I'm gonna turn around and now I'm going to head this way. 
I've heard it said before that if you are headed in the wrong direction, the fastest way to get to where you want to be is to turn around and go back. And that is what repentance is. Repentance in God's word is a radical change of my heart and my mind and my life. It is when everything is different. It was going this way, but now it's going this way. That's what repentance is. And it's really easy for us to kind of casually talk about like, well, I believe in God or I'm a Christian or I go to church or I went to Hume Lake and kind of make these non-committal statements about things that are true of us. What's really hard is to do the thing that God is actually, to call, actually calling us to do, which is change our lives. God is not really interested in passive acceptance of some vaguely religious ideas. God is not really concerned if you know facts about him or you can regurgitate information from the Bible. God wants your life. He wants your heart. And if you are headed away from him, he wants you to walk in repentance, which means you will stop and you will turn around and head towards him. He wants repentance. And what we see in this next section in verses six through nine is an instantaneous and aggressive reversal of the situation. In short, what we see is an act of repentance. We see this amazing display. Look at verse six, and I wanna just kind of walk through this as we see all of these things that change radically. This, verse six says, the word reached the king of Nineveh, the big boss, the, guys who, the guy who's in charge. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. First, he steps off the throne. This is a symbol of him saying, the seat of my authority and the place of my ruling, I am going to step off of that and now God is going to be in charge instead of me being in charge. Then what does he do? He rose from his throne, he removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth. This is him saying, the symbols of my power and prestige, I lay down and I will cover myself now in humility. Sackcloth is like burlap. It's itchy and it's gross and it's horrible and it's a sign of mourning and repentance. He takes off his, his Gucci robes, his big giant ornate kingly robes and he puts on a potato sack and he says, this is a representation of where my heart is. Then this. He sits in ashes. He sat in ashes. This is, this is him saying, I, I didn't think that my sin was a big deal, but now I think it's a big deal. I believe that God is real and that his judgment is coming, and I am gonna sit in these ashes as a display of my brokenness over my own sin. And then he declares a fast. He issued a proclamation published through Nineveh by the decree of the kings and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth. He was so serious about this fast, he made the cows do it. He was like, even the livestock, all the dogs, all the cats, all the animals, nobody's eating. This is, this is how dramatic the change is in this city. I used to be hungry for earthly pleasure, now all I want is God, and I'm willing to even forego food so I can spend time doing what? The next thing, calling out to God, and let them call mightily out to God. I used to rely on myself completely, and now I'm crying for God's help. And then this, maybe the most important sentence here, and I'll tell you why in a second. He said, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. 
remember their, the pattern of them. They would, these Ninevites, this Assyrian empire, they would conquer people with savage brutality and disgusting violence. And the king says, all of that stuff that we used to do, that's over. We're done doing that. Every single one of you, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a captain in the army, I don't care who it is, we are done with the evil and the violence. He says, everyone turn from it. This book takes great pains to describe the drama of the change, the complete overhaul of the way things were. He steps off his throne, he takes off his robes, he sits in the ashes, he calls for a fast, he tells everyone to turn away from their violence. This is a perfect picture of repentance. And so if we want to experience transformation and revival, if we wanna have new spiritual life by the mercy of God, we've gotta make a dramatic change. I think what we would like to do is say, God, I'll give you a little bit. Like God, maybe you can have like, you can have this much of my heart. You can have this much of my life. I'll give you this little corner of what I got going on, but all of this stuff, I would like to keep it for myself. And God's just not interested in that. God wants all of you. And he's calling you to make a dramatic change. So my question for you is this, what in your life needs to change dramatically for you to experience spiritual life? Another way to phrase the question is where do you need to repent? Where in your life, what relationships, what habits, what patterns, what thoughts have been headed this way And in order for you to be close to God and experience his kindness and his grace, you've been headed this way and you need to stop what you're doing, turn around and head this way. You need to repent. Here's what's so amazing. All of us have areas in our lives that we need to do that. God calls all of us, the Bible says, God calls all men everywhere, all men, all women, everywhere at all times to repent, to change. Now, I am not just standing up here and ranting and raving about how you need to stop it and you need to change your behavior and you need to do better and you need to try harder and here's why. Because look what happens in verse 10. Verse nine, the king expresses his hopes. Who knows, God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so we may not perish. And in verse 10, his greatest hopes are confirmed. When God saw what they did, and this is why I said turning from evil was the most important one, because God doesn't note that he saw stepping off the throne, or taking off the robes, or sitting in the ashes, or doing a fast. Doesn't say God saw any of that. It says when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The last and the most important way to experience revival is to receive a powerful mercy. To receive a powerful mercy. God 
came to this city and he warned them that destruction was coming. These people, they heeded the warning. They believed God and they turned from their evil ways and God showed them mercy. Mercy simply means this. Mercy is not receiving what you deserve. Mercy is not receiving what you deserve. Now we think about these Ninevites and just the brief description that I've given them, given to you of them. It's easy for us to think that the Ninevites deserved something. You know, you think of like really bad people and you're like, oh, I hope they get theirs. I hope justice is served. I hope they get what's coming to them. So we think of evil people like the Ninevites and we think, they, I know they deserve something. But we have a real problem when we disassociate ourselves from people like the Ninevites, this is Jonah's problem. He thinks of the Ninevites as wrong and bad and evil and disgusting, and he thinks of himself in a different category. And what we need to do tonight, if we will truly receive the message of the book of Jonah, if we will receive what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach to us through the word that he inspired and preserved, we need to understand that we are just like the Ninevites. That they, in their evil and in their wickedness, they deserve the wrath of God, and so do we. We're no better. We are just as sinful, we are just as rebellious. All of us in our own ways have turned away from God, have rejected him, have disobeyed him, have dishonored his holiness, have disregarded his law. It's sin, it lives in every single one of us and it is deserving of the judgment of God. But the good news of this story is that God is willing to offer mercy. God is willing to withhold from us what we deserve. The same God who extended mercy to the Ninevites is willing to extend mercy to you and to me tonight. And the ultimate expression of his mercy is the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. If we want to look for the pinnacle expression of the love and the grace and the mercy of God, we need to look to Jesus Christ and what he has done on our behalf. In fact, Jesus himself is the ultimate fulfillment of what the book of Jonah is trying to teach us. And I know that because Jesus himself said it. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus was asked, hey, show us a sign. And Jesus responded, he said, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. Now what was he talking about? He was talking about this. He was, he was saying that Jonah's story is going to mirror my story. Jonah's story is gonna mirror Jesus. The story of Jonah is meant to point us to our need for Jesus and its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Think about this for just a second. Jonah was cast into the sea and the sea became calm. He went into the fish for three days and then he was spit out on dry land to preach repentance and life to the Ninevites. Jesus was cast into the sea of God's wrath on our behalf on the cross and that sea was calmed. He went into the earth for three days and then came back to life to preach forgiveness and repentance to sin 
sinners like you and like me. His story mirrors Jonah's. And Jesus, in fact, himself is the better Jonah. He is the true Jonah. He is the prophet that Jonah was always supposed to be. He succeeds everywhere that Jonah fails. Jonah ran away from his enemies in judgment. Jesus ran to his enemies in grace. Jonah was on a mission of revenge. Jesus was on a mission of rescue. Jonah was all about sinful self-preservation and Jesus was all about sacrificial love and sacrifice. This is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to be our rescue. And Jesus came to give us new life. Jesus came to offer us revival. Jesus himself said, it is not those who are well who have need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus knew that he was coming to a hurt and a broken and a lost and a dying world and he came to offer them light and life and forgiveness and healing and restoration. Jesus came to offer revival and that's what his life and his ministry was all about. Jesus lived for all of his days with a perfect track record of obedience to the law of God. He fulfilled all righteousness. Everywhere you and I broke God's law, Jesus upheld it and kept it. And then with all of his spotless perfection, he went straight to the cross. Having no sin of his own to pay for, Jesus hung on that cross and was crucified, not just dying a brutal physical death, but bearing the full weight of the wrath of God as the lamb who was slain, his blood shed to cover our sin. Jesus died on that cross for you and for me so that our debt could be forgiven and our guilt could be washed away by his blood. And then having died, given up his life under the weight of God's judgment, he was raised to life in the power of the resurrection three days later, never to die again, conquering sin and Satan and hell and death once and for all and offering the free gift of eternal life to anyone, anywhere who would trust him by faith. That's the good news of what Jesus has done. Jesus lived, died, and rose again so that you could have life, so that you could be forgiven, so that you, who deserve the wrath of God, would instead receive the mercy of God. This is the great exchange of what Jesus has accomplished. All of our debt and all of our wickedness and all of our guilt and all of our shame, and I'm sure tonight you've got some of that. I am, I am 100% positive that in this room, at this very moment, we carry the weight of our own guilt and our fear and our shame. Jesus is willing to take all of that from you and to trade it for his perfect righteousness. He's willing to do it. He is willing to give you his mercy. God wants to transform your life through revival. The question is, will you humble yourself and will you walk in repentance so that you can receive it? I wanna give you a chance to respond and to commit yourself to say, I want to walk in repentance. I wanna stop the way I'm going 
and I want to receive the mercy of God. So if you would, I just, I just want to pray, but would you just bow your head before we do? Because I want to give you a chance. I want to give you a chance to respond to the mercy of God and to receive the mercy of God. So tonight, if you want revival, if you want spiritual life, if you want forgiveness and grace and mercy to be yours, would you just hear the hard message of what you deserve, but then would you take the second chance that God has offered you? Would you give a genuine response and make a dramatic change? And most of all, if, if you want to receive a powerful mercy, if instead of what you deserve, you wanna, see, you wanna receive God's great love and kindness towards you through Jesus Christ, would you just, for a minute, right now, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? You just raise your hand where you're sitting with all the heads bowed. Would you just raise your hand that you want to walk in repentance and you want to receive the grace of God? You just go ahead, raise your hand up high so I can see it. Raise your hand up high. Whether you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and you need to come back or you've never known Jesus at all, would you just raise your hand up? Raise it up. Awesome. I want to take a minute and pray for you. God, we thank you so much for the availability of your grace. We thank you, God, that despite the fact that we have sinned against you, you choose to love us anyways. God, I pray that in these moments that we have together, even as these young people commit themselves to walk in repentance. God, I pray that even right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, they would receive the nearness of your presence and they would feel the crashing waves of your mercy rush upon them. They would know that right now in this moment, if they choose to trust in the Lord Jesus, put all of their faith and their confidence not in themselves and in what they can do, but in what Jesus has done. God, I pray that you would meet them right in that place and you would shower them with love, that you would be near to them and that you would transform their hearts and their lives from the inside out. God, we love you. We're so thankful that you care about us enough to tell us like it is. And I pray that you would give many of us the courage to change direction, to stop going the way that we're going, to repent and to receive your great love and mercy. God, we love you. We confess together that we need you. And so we pray all of these things in the name of your great son and our savior, Jesus. If you agree with that, can you say amen?